This month we're looking at the five solas of the Reformation. Sola meaning alone. This month marks the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. On October 31st of 1517, Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses on the church door in Wittenberg, Germany, challenging the Pope's authority and in particular his authority with the issue of indulgences. Um, Martin did not think much would come of it, but God had different plans as it would capture the hearts and the imaginations of the peoples in Germany and beyond, and through the printing press, these theses and then additional works from Luther and others would be spread all throughout Europe. Protestant Reformation essentially born on that day, October 31st, 1517. At the end of the day, when it was all said and done, if you will, and it's generally marked from 1517 to about 1643, four essential questions, questions that were already being asked and already being provided answers, were given new answers. Where does religious authority lie? Does authority lie in sacred scripture, sacred tradition, as interpreted by the Pope and the magisterium? Does it lie, if you will, within the Roman church? Sacred scripture, sacred tradition, the Pope and the magisterium and the interpretations that they give? Or were the reformers correct in protesting against that and seeking to reform Protestant Reformation to say no sacred scripture alone. Of course, we are good Protestant folk, and we believe in scripture alone, sola scriptura, the final authority for what you and I are to believe and how you and I are to live is the Bible. Another question, what is the church? Is the church essentially a hierarchy of pope and bishop and priests at the top of the food chain and the folks, the peasants, the people down here? Something less. And the reformers were famous for the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers. That the whole community of Christian believers is what makes up the church. That no pastor or bishop or anyone else is in any, any better place before God than any man or woman, young or old, who has put their faith in Jesus Christ. Every man, woman, and child who has turned in faith to Jesus Christ is a priest before God. What is the essence of Christian living? It had been corrupted, if you will, to the thought that those who were really serious Christians, those who were really good Christians, were those who would give themselves to a monastic lifestyle, and then even better than that, to the priesthood. And that the rest of the folks weren't in as privileged a position. The Protestant Reformation came along and said, Oh no, any man or woman serving 
God in any useful calling, whether ordained or lay. That is the essence of Christian living. Anybody in any useful calling, faithful to Christ. Fourth, how is a person saved? Matt took that one up last week as well with grace alone. This morning, we want to look at faith alone. Against Catholicism and the corruptions which had come into the church, which seemed to include works, the Protestant reformers said, no, it is faith alone. I could be wrong about this. I will readily admit it, but I've tried to kick it around with Antonio who grew up within Catholicism and in Mexico with Catholicism all around. Within Catholicism, they will claim that we are saved by grace, but the way you receive that grace is through the performance of the sacraments. And as you perform the sacraments, grace is given to you. And the more you can do, the more grace that you receive. And so you're hopeful to have received enough grace through your participation in the sacraments to have a right standing before God. See, the problem that we have as humans is that through our sin, we are separated from God. The Bible's just absolutely clear about it. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death, and after death comes judgment. Everyone has sinned, and our sin separates us from God, and we are destined to an eternity apart from Him. That's the human predicament, fallen in sin. But the good news is that though that predicament is so bad, God is yet greater still. The good news is that he came on a rescue mission through the person of his son, Jesus, who lived a holy life we couldn't live and then went to the cross and died upon the cross, taking the wrath of God in our place and for our sins. That's wonderful, the person and the work of Jesus. But you're still left with the question, how then do I connect to Christ to receive the benefits of what he has done. It's as if I am over here in sin and under God's wrath and Christ is over there who he is and having done what he did. But the fact that he came and accomplished what he did does not then automatically mean that everyone has their sins forgiven Righteousness of God imputed to their account and right before God. And so the question becomes, how do I connect to Christ? How do I receive the benefits of who He is and what He has done? And one answer is through the performance of works. I'm going to have to do some things in order to make my way over to Him. I'm going to have to do better, do more. 
Step one, step two, step three, hopefully avoid this and avoid that with the hopes that through my efforts, God will be pleased. That through my performance, God will say, you made it. That through my righteous acts, God will take what Christ did and what I've done and boil them together, if you will, into salvation for me. The reformers said no. And the reformers said no because they were rooting what they said in the scriptures. Sola Scriptura. What does the Bible say about these things? How can a sinful person be united to Jesus Christ and receive the benefits of who he is and what he has done? How does that happen? And the Bible is explicitly clear. Through faith in Christ. I want to show you some verses this morning. We don't have a whole lot of time, but turn with me to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 1. We're going to look at a handful of verses in, in Romans, but we'll start in chapter 1. If you were here a couple of weeks ago, I could share the story of the initial days of the Protestant Reformation, the life of Martin Luther, at least in the early portions of his life. Where in 1505, he became a monk with the hopes of through his monkery, finding peace in his soul. He couldn't find it. In 1510, he took a trip to Rome to see Rome, the church, the, the motherland, if you will, in hopes that he could find something there that would ease his conscience, and he could not find it. It only made it worse. In 1512, he was encouraged by those above him within the monastery to go and be a teacher of Scripture at the University of Wittenberg. Wittenberg. And so he did. And he went and he got his master's in theology, and then he began to teach in 1513. Taught through the Psalms. 1514 began to teach through the book of Romans. 1515, 1516, as he taught through the book of Romans, we believe this is when the lights began to come on for him. And in particular, he would note that it's chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. This is often called the theme book of the book of Romans. That it's right here where Paul packs his punch before launching out in his argument throughout the rest of the book. He says, the reason I want to come to Rome and preach the gospel is I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. 
as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Luther pondered that and pondered that and pondered that. Because when he read the righteousness of God is revealed, what he had in mind was the, was the judging righteousness of God. And he knew himself to be a great sinner. And if in the gospel God's righteous judgment is revealed, then he was in trouble. But at the same time, the verse was talking of living by faith. And so he kept thinking on this and thinking on this and thinking on this. What does this mean? He came to the conclusion, and it has been the standard interpretation ever since, that this righteousness of God that is revealed is not the judging righteousness of God. It is the, the, the perfection of God. The righteousness of God. That listen, every one of us needs, but no one of us has. But that God freely gives to those who will believe. Now, if you've been around Redeemer, you've heard these things. If you're fairly new, I'm going to use a fancy word. Imputation. What Luther came to believe this meant, along with other verses in the New Testament, was that, that God took the very righteousness of His Son, Jesus Christ, and through the Gospel, He takes that righteousness and imputes it to the sinner's account. Doesn't make us righteous, but through this action, considers us righteous. We call it justification. That we are justified by God. As He considers our sins forgiven, as Jesus paid for them on the cross, and as He imputes the righteousness of Jesus Christ to our account. We are justified. We are declared righteous by God. Not because we have a righteousness of ourselves but the perfect righteousness of God in His Son Jesus is imputed to us. We'll see it again in a bit, but let me just note one other thing. Paul was so excited about this gospel and he was so unashamed about it because in, the right, in this gospel, that righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Lots of ideas as to what that could possibly mean, but most all believe what he does mean by this is from beginning to end. It's this righteousness of God is secured by faith. And the best way he could say it was from faith to faith. From beginning to end. Faith alone. In one eighteen through 3.20, he then goes on to show the absolute lack of righteousness among all men. It's a loaded read from 1.18 all the way to 3.20. 1.18 to 32, he shows the Gentile world is lacks the righteousness of God which he's, he requires. In 2.1 all the way to 3.8, the, the Jews 
Even though they were so privileged, they too lacked the righteousness of God, which he so requires. And in 3, 9 to 20, he sums it all up. What then? Are we, the Jews, better than they, the Gentiles? Not at all. For we've already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin as it is written. There's none righteous, not even one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become useless. There's no one who does good. There's not even one. On and on and on and on. Verse 19, now we know that whatever the law says, which he had just been quoting, it speaks to those who are under the law, Jews, so that every mouth, Jews and Gentiles, may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. So 118 all the way to 320, he has shown everyone is a sinner. And no one has any excuse. We all lack the righteousness which God requires. There's no, no one righteous. No, not one. But then, and this is the next text I wanted to show us, 321 to 31, this is the greatest paragraph that's ever been written. Many would say that. Having just shown that none are righteous, no, not one, then where is righteousness going to come from? If I must be righteous to be right with God, but in and of myself I am unrighteous, which is beyond question, then how am I ever going to be saved, ever made right with God? Verse 21, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. There it is, through faith. For in it, the righteousness of, of God is revealed from faith to faith, even the righteousness of God through faith. In Jesus Christ, for all those who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He just said that in 118 to 320. And if this is the greatest paragraph ever, this is the greatest verse. Being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Being justified, being declared righteous, you have to be righteous, but you're not. But God, through the person and the work of His Son, Jesus Christ, declares you righteous, justifies you. And the source of it is the grace of God. We didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it. It is His undeserved favor towards those who only deserve His wrath. The source of it is God's grace. The grounds of it is Christ and his work of redemption in verse 24 and of propitiation in verse 25. Fancy word there. Propitiation simply means this. It is the satisfaction of wrath. Boy, these things aren't politically correct. But to all those who are politically correct, you want to say, but you've got to read the Bible. We are sinners. 
we deserve his wrath. Christ comes and takes the wrath for us. That's what propitiation means. He satisfies the wrath of God for us. So the source of our justification is God's grace. The grounds of it is Jesus and his work upon the cross, redeeming us and propitiating the wrath of God and the means of of securing this justification is through faith, verse 25. It's the way the New American Standard reads. It puts through faith at the very end of this phrase. And they do that because it's at the very end of the Greek phrase. But grammatically, it should probably be attached all the way up to verse 24, being justified through faith being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood, and it's received through faith. This justification, this being made right or declared right before God, sourced in the grace of God, grounded in the work of Christ, secured through the means faith. Paul goes on in chapter 4. He says, let me illustrate it from the life of Abraham and supplement it just a bit from the life of David, but just briefly, it's a lot to read, but in verses 1 through 8, he's going to show that Abraham was saved or declared righteous by God, not by works, but through faith. Not by works. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. He can boast before the mirror. He can boast before other men. But he can't boast before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. He believed, he, he trusted. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. He says Abraham was not saved by his works. He believed God. He put his faith in the promise of God. Verse 6, just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God reckons righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. David in verse 7 is speaking about a man, verse 7 and 8, who is not righteous. This man has lawless deeds and he's a sinner. And yet God can declare that man righteous through faith, not through his works. His works are sin. Verse 9 to 12, not only was he not saved by his works, he wasn't saved by circumcision. Is this blessing of justification, being declared right before God, on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also? For we say faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. 
How then was it credited while he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. If you know the Genesis story, God made his promises to Abraham. Abraham believed them in chapter 15. And the Bible says that God declared him righteous. Circumcision doesn't come until two chapters later in chapter 17. How then was it credited while he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be credited to them. So 1 to 8, he wasn't saved by his works. 9 to 12, he wasn't saved by circumcision. 13 to 15, he wasn't saved by the law. For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be an heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. The law would come hundreds of years later through Moses. Not by works. Not by religious rite or sacrament. Not by obedience to the law. But, verse 16 through the end of the chapter, faith. For this reason it is by faith, in order that it may be in accordance with grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, the Jews, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, as it is written, the father of many nations I have made you. So not just Jews, but Gentiles also, like us. We can be saved. And it is through faith, verse 18, in hope against hope he believed so that he might become a father of many nations according to that which had been spoken. So shall your descendants be. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead since he was a hundred years old in the deadness of Sarah's womb. God had been talking to him about a descendant that he was going to have, and yet he was an old man and his wife was an old woman, past childbearing, and yet God had promised. And when God promises, the response is to believe. It says, in hope against hope, that means, this is crazy. I'm old, my wife is old, we can't have a child. There's no hope. In hope against hope, he believed. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet, with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. Therefore, also it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham was not saved by his works. He was not saved by circumcision. He wasn't saved by law. Abraham was saved because he trusted in the promise of God. And it's the same for every one of us. The final verse here in Romans in chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith. Therefore, having been justified by faith. 
If you're doing a Bible study with the Apostle Paul, by the time he gets you to chapter 5, verse 1, he's assuming that you're now saved. He's assuming that you've, oh yeah, I get it. Yep, 118 to 320, we're all sinners. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Yep, that's me. And he assumes that you've understood 321 to 31, that God sent Jesus, his son. Because of his grace, he sent Jesus to do a work of redemption and propitiation, calling upon all to believe, to trust. And he gives you a big illustration of it from Abraham's life and says, see, let me show you Father Abraham. He wasn't saved by his works. He wasn't saved by circumcision. He wasn't saved by the law. He was saved because in hope against hope, he believed and trusted. And his assumption is that you and I have gotten to this place and said, I believe too. And having been justified by faith. Time flies. In John chapter 1, the apostle said, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. The most popular verse in all the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved, through faith, that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not as a result of works, lest any man should boast. In Galatians 2, Paul, possibly speaking to Peter, we're not exactly sure if, if he's recording what he said to Peter or just recording something he believed, but either way. We are Jews by nature, he says. Paul, the Jewish man, says, and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Let me close with this. What is it about faith that makes it so special? The Bible speaks of you and me being saved through faith, or by faith. Interesting, it never says according to faith. As if our faith were the grounds of our justification. No, Christ is the grounds of our justification. We're saved through it or by it. The theologians will say that faith is the instrumental cause, but not the material cause of our justification. The material cause, that which is the substance of it, the, the matter of it, the material cause of our justification is Christ, His righteousness and His work on the cross on our behalf. That's the material cause. The instrumental cause of how you and I connect to receiving Him is faith. In its very nature, I like this. Faith is, is active in receiving, but it's non-contributory. Whenever you and I put our faith in Jesus, we're not contributing anything 
it's, it's just a receiving. In that sense, it's very passive. It's receptive. One guy said it like this, that faith has no constructive energy. Put your faith in Jesus. You're not building anything. You're not doing any. You're just, it's complete reliance upon another. It involves abandoning ourselves, not congratulating ourselves. And thus all boasting is gone. Have you put your faith in Jesus? Years ago, many of us were trained in what was called Evangelism Explosion. And it was a wonderful evangelism course. And one of the things it trained us to do was to ask diagnostic questions. Two of them. I'd like to ask them to you. The first was this. If you were to die tonight... Would you go to heaven? If you were to die tonight, would you go to heaven? If you answer, I believe I'd go to heaven. Second question. If you were to die tonight and stand before God and he were to say to you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? If you were to die tonight and stand before God and he were to say to you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? If you begin to list your spiritual resume, Well, you know, I, I think I've been a pretty good guy. I mean, you know, I, I'm not as good as I could be. I know that. But, you know, I'm not as bad as the dudes I work with. And I'm not as sorry as my sister-in-law, you know. I go to church. Provide a good living for my family. I, I think I'm a pretty good guy. That's a, that's a salvation by works. Why should I let you into my heaven? Well, God, because of this and because of that and because I did this and I haven't done that and I've been pretty good at this and, you know, I know I could be better here, but according to the Scriptures, no, no. You have to abandon yourself and abandon your resume and realize that you and I are helpless before God. And we need Him who lived a holy life for us and who died upon a cross to pay the penalty for what we've done. It's all accomplished by Him. 
We don't contribute anything to it. We don't add anything to it. We don't go through this and do this and do this to, to mix it together such that God would go, okay, good, you made it. It's all done by Christ. And the language of the scriptures is to receive, or to believe, or to put your faith in him. It's, it's active, but it's non-contributory. I like to say it's putting all your chips on him. It's, it's clinging to Christ. He's got to be your hope, not your resume. Let's pray. Father in heaven, right now, pray that if any are here, just a moment ago answered with a resume, oh God, would you help them to see right now it is not by works, but through faith in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith. That not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. Not as a result of works. Lest any man should boast. God help them to see that they cannot earn your salvation. They do not deserve your salvation. But you are God of grace who has accomplished it for them through Jesus. Would you help them now to cling to Christ, to trust in Him and Him alone. Lord, as we leave here today, might we go out in the joy of the Lord as we fellowship with our brothers and Sisters in the Espanol congregation and beyond that, as we scatter out this week, might we go forth in joy. That through Christ, our sins are forgiven. Through Christ, we've been declared righteous. Through Christ, we are part of the family of God. Through Christ, we have eternal life. And that joy would overflow into our families, into our neighborhoods, into our workplaces, everywhere we go, that the joy of the Lord would be our strength, the joy of the Lord would be a blessing to others. And we'll pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.